You're listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Guys, we all follow Laura Koonsberg, tweeted the news producer Callum May in July 2019 as a flurry of journalists rushed to tweet the same news that Boris Johnson had just won election as the leader of the Conservative Party. The only person who needed to tweet was Laura. Hi, Laura. She has been the face and voice of British politics for the past seven years. To remain or to leave the European Union. With every twist and turn, from Brexit to the fall of Theresa May and the rise of Boris Johnson to coronavirus. What have you got wrong so that you get it right next time? She has been there. On our screens, in our ears, on our Twitter feeds. Breaking the news, sharing the inside track. I think that's actually come from Laura Koonsberg. Asking the questions. Did you ever just come home here at the end of the day and feel really angry? What had actually just happened? She has been the most visible and important political journalist in the UK during the most turbulent times we have experienced in decades. Our political editor, Laura Koonsberg. Since she stood down as BBC political editor earlier this year, the turbulence that has become almost normal for British politics hasn't stopped. Hasta la vista, baby. Thank you. And nor has Laura Koonsberg. After Quasi Quarteng's extraordinary not-a-budget budget sent the pound plummeting last Friday, our new Chancellor gave an interview to, who else? Laura on her new show, Sunday with Laura Koonsberg. And there's more to come. We've only been here 19 days. I want to see people retain more of their income. Well, that's very interesting. So you've made clear that this is just the start. As we all now know, those comments, that hint that further tax cuts might be coming, precipitated a further plunge in the value of the pound when markets opened on Monday morning. At one point on Monday, the pound fell to its lowest ever value against the dollar. This is journalism that moves markets, that maybe even ends careers. What are you going to do about the turmoil on the markets this morning, sir? I'm not going to make any comment now. Thank you. After being on our screens, our social media feeds and in our ears for so many years, a lot of us might feel like we know Laura Koonsberg, but she rarely speaks publicly about herself. She gave one interview to the Sunday Times in 2019 to promote her Brexit documentary. And in recent weeks, she has done two print interviews to promote her new show. But that's it. Except 
for this. I mean, I still get lost. Don't feel bad about it. I still got lost, you know, after years and years. We arranged to record this interview a couple of days after her new show launched, and things hadn't gone entirely to plan. She'd managed to land interviews with the First Lady of Ukraine and both contenders to be the next Prime Minister. Liz Truss. Because what I'm about is about growing the economy. And Rishi Sunak. The public finances were on a trajectory. Remember him? But it was a non-politician, a young comedian from Birmingham who'd stolen all the headlines. I loved it. I thought she was very clear. She gave great, clear answers. I'm sure you remember. Joe Lysett's deeply sarcastic praise of Prime Minister-in-waiting Liz Truss made the front page of the Daily Mail, which accused the BBC of anti-Tory bias. I'm actually very right-wing. It was discussed in Parliament. And he said she was the dregs of what they've got available and the backwash of the available MPs. But other people loved it. And lots of them worried that Laura Koonsberg, and the BBC in general, wouldn't allow a Tory politician to be lampooned by a comedian like that on the show again. So, on the morning we were due to record, with Joe Lysett still trending on Twitter, I can imagine the last thing Laura Coonsberry wanted to do was wade into the latest iteration of the BBC impartiality row. A less generous guest might have cancelled, knowing what I was bound to ask about. There's one guest we haven't mentioned yet. Who could that be? But she said she would do it, and she did. And then, well events took over. Just as we were due to release today's episode, the news broke that the Queen had died. It didn't seem appropriate to run it then, but we're very pleased to bring it to you now. So, here's what Laura Koonsberg had to say about seven years in the thick of it as the BBC's political editor, about starting out about controversy. You know, you don't become a journalist to become people's friend. And the sisterhood in Westminster. From Politico, I'm Alva Ray. And this week on Westminster Insider, we're meeting probably the most famous journalist in the UK, Laura Koonsberg. If you're Laura Koonsberg, you're always in a hurry. Right, I'm recording on here. I'm afraid I've got a hard out at 9.30. I've got a call I have to make at that time. Laura has been at the very heart of British politics, hearing the inside track like almost no other journalist. The BBC political editor role is, by most people's assessment, the most senior job in British political journalism. It's definitely the most prominent. If you're the top political reporter at the big public service broadcaster, there's pretty much no one in politics who won't pick up the phone to you. Laura is more of a Westminster insider than almost anyone, but that's not how she sees herself. That horrifies me because I always try to do the job from the perspective of the person who's sitting on the sofa not being the Westminster insider, but I suppose after that time I can't actually claim not to have been. That would be ridiculous. I loved doing that job and I loved working in Westminster, but also I sort of ended up there by accident. So I think for me, I was always both trying to do the job from the perspective of if I was watching at home, what do I need to know? So I was trying to do that deliberately because I was working in a job with a mainstream audience rather than the lovely listeners of Westminster Insider. 
but also because genuinely that's how I felt about the place. You know, I felt maybe the, I don't know, the outsider's insider, but I certainly felt like an outsider, certainly when I arrived and during a lot of it. Laura Koonsberg grew up in Glasgow, the youngest of three children in a successful international family of eminent physicians, judges and diplomats. She went to a private all-girls school in Glasgow and then studied history at Edinburgh University. While she was a student, she spent a year studying at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., where she had her first taste of journalism. It's Meet the Press. She was an intern on NBC's Meet the Press, the longest-running television programme in the world, America's big Sunday politics show. Not dissimilar to the new Sunday with Laura Koonsberg. When I began my career, I certainly didn't have an aspiration to go and work in Westminster, and it sort of happened through, you know, serendipity and accident and interesting jobs coming up. She returned home to Glasgow and started out on local radio and cable TV. She joined BBC North Eastern Cumbria as a trainee in 2000, where she won a Royal Television Society Award for her home affairs reporting. It was in 2003 that she began working in the alien world of Westminster. When I arrived, like, I knew no one and I knew sort of nothing. You know, I'd been a working journalist and I knew about politics and I knew bits and pieces, but I never was a kind of creature of the place, you know, and I didn't do student politics and I never worked for an MP. And, you know, lots of people go into political journalism because they have always been you know, political nerds, and that's great, but that was never me. And and what things in particular made you feel like an outsider? Well, I just just think I I was. I didn't know anyone. You know, I didn't know my way around. And I've I've, I've probably told this story before. I think I maybe told this story at one of our women's lobby events that it was one of our first sort of shifts on on the news desk in Westminster. This is a long time ago, back in the 18th century. And they said... um, can you go across to the lobby to just go and see who's around? And I thought, oh, right, oh, well, that's, that's, cent- that's central lobby, isn't it? Uh, and I think newsroom cultures were quite different then. You know, now I would always say to anybody, you know, ask a question. There's no such thing as a silly question. And I think I had this sort of bravado of like, oh, yeah, well, I'll just go and do that. And I went and sat in central lobby with my MP's directory making phone calls. And, of course, that was about 50 yards from members' lobby, which is, of course, where MPs hang out and where journalists go and stop and ask questions. And just, you know, I didn't know, I suppose I always think in Westminster as well, this sort of physicality of the place, right? Just the building, this sort of 19th century warren and maze and, you know, incredible building. You still find nooks and crannies after, you know, more than a decade working there. So there's the physicality of the building that I was a stranger to. It's so interesting. I mean, I still get lost. I haven't been there that long. Yeah. <laughs> I have a couple of set routes. <laughs> right. Well, don't feel bad about it. I still got lost, you know, after years and years and years and years and years, you know, or stuck. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, you find yourself in the wrong Think, how have I done this? The, the, the mistake is also to think about it. I used to find as soon as, as soon as I thought about the route I was taking, I would get lost. Whereas if I just barreled on, that was fine. You'd sort of end up roughly in the right place in the end. I've heard lots of people here in Westminster talk about the psychological effect of this imposing centuries-old palace, which has seen so much history in its hundreds of years. It is, in a way, a physical manifestation of the British establishment, the kind of place that only really feels comfortable if you're familiar with England's most historic boarding schools. But it still surprises me to hear that someone I see as part of the furniture in Westminster 
was made to feel like an outsider in its imposing buildings. And it wasn't just the building that gave her an outsider's mentality. I've been covering, you know, train crashes and court cases in the health system and, you know, news. Foot and mouth was one of the first big stories that I worked on for months and months and months. So lots of the things that were associated with politics, but sort of capital P politics was new to me. I didn't know the people, really, you know. So the sort of people were strangers. The building was a maze of mystery. And also the, the kind of language, you know, the vernacular. That sounds quite pompous, but this, if you know, Westminster does have its own language, uh, its own slang, its own gossip, its own acronyms, and a big part of what we do. I mean, particularly at the BBC, but I think all of us in the lobby, a big part of what we do or what we ought to do is that sort of decoding thing. You know, if you go to a summit with foreign leaders and everybody's got the kind of translation headphones on, I think sometimes actually political journalists are doing that not from, you know, Italian to English or Russian to English, but from like Westminster speak to normal language. So there's a kind of translation decoding kind of thing. And, you know, and I didn't speak the language as it were when I arrived a long time ago. Let me take you back a long time ago to 2006, when in a sleepy, rural, safe seat in the Shires, the Conservatives were selecting their candidate for the next election. Once they had chosen their candidate, that unknown MP-in-waiting got a call from Laura at the BBC, then a less well-known political correspondent. She just rang for a quick chat, just to say hello and build a picture of their politics. No other journalist bothered. She was the first reporter to reach out to that person who would go on to become an important minister under Theresa May. And that is a classic Laura Coonsberg anecdote that you hear so often here in Westminster. Let's talk to our political editor, Laura Coonsberg. So that was how she rose, from political correspondent to chief correspondent in 2009. Her boundless energy pushed her everywhere. Soon she was on our screens so much that the columnist David Aronovich described the BBC's coverage of the 2010 general election as, quite simply, Coonsberg vision. Laura, I read that you're the tweeter's favourite in this election. <laughs> um, you've certainly been seen everywhere talking about it. She eventually took on the top job in British political journalism in 2015, just as politics was about to change. Through an in-out referendum, on Thursday the 23rd of June. The choice is in your hands. As the BBC's first female political editor, she became the person on our screens, radios, Twitter feeds every day, giving us the inside track through Brexit, Jeremy Corbyn, Theresa May, Boris Johnson. I wish we'd got Brexit over the line. Some of the rockiest times we've seen in British politics. This is the start of a new and very different era. Boris Johnson and the Brexiteers are now in charge. I feel honoured to have had that kind of ringside seat, to use that terrible cliche, during such a moment when, you know, history sort of was happening in front of us almost every day and several governments fell apart and I saw... You know, this sort of brutality of one Prime Minister in and one Prime Minister out. I wish the next Prime Minister well. 
you know, there's, there's nothing like standing in Downing Street when you see them come out for the final time. So we'll have a new Prime Minister in that building behind me uh, by Wednesday evening. And I saw Brian do that, I saw Cameron do that, I saw May do that. To serve the country I love. I saw Johnson do that on the telly. This is it, folks. But I think, I, I think you know, seven years, is, it was long enough. I mean, I think we're all news junkies, right? If you do this job for long enough, you do sort of become kind of wired into the, to the system. But actually, by the time I finished, I was very sad to be leaving my, my lovely team and sort of nostalgic for kind of what we'd all lived through and the highs and the lows of covering it all. But actually, you know, very ready to very ready to move on. And I decided a long time before I actually moved on that I was going to move on. So it wasn't a kind of quick decision. So I think I was used to it. But, you know, I've I've had a couple of days, probably two or three days only when I've thought, oh, it'd be fun to be there today. Which days, if you don't mind me asking? Well, one of the, the, the day actually when Johnson, when all the letters were coming for his resignation and, and having covered his like just roller coaster and, and for such a long time, that was a kind of, oh, my God, this is like a massive national, you know, this is a huge national yes. moment. Um, Chris, let's go straight back to you. You were just talking to Downing Street. The Prime Minister has agreed to stand down. He but actually what happened was I then got a call from Panorama and they said, we need to now make a documentary about this all finishing. Can you get on a train? <laughs> and I, you know, so, so I ended up being there anyway. I, I, I arrived like two hours after. So, you know, I think, I mean, I said to, to, to someone else that my new job is sort of like being the second cousin or the first cousin, you know, so I'm sort of involved but not involved. And that's that's fine. You know, I'm happy not to be there every day anymore. And I'm... Happy to see the great team at BBC Westminster go from strength to strength, you know, and Chris has settled in brilliantly. And I think you know when it's time, right, in life. You know, and it was a long, a long old haul. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was a long old haul. I mean, I was expecting you to say there that after those seven years, you were, you you sort of needed a good rest. Because Mm. I've always wanted to ask you about your stamina. Because I remember a Conservative Party conference last year, Mm. final night, Mm. I left the bar, I think, around two in the morning, and I remember spotting you as I was leaving, still sort of, you know, speaking to Conservatives. Surely that can't be true. I I protest... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I spotted you still still speaking to people yeah. as I was leaving late. Yeah. And then the following morning, I woke up probably around seven and turned on the Today programme. You were on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, how did she do that? And I know in interviews you said that, I mean, certainly during the Brexit era, you were getting to sleep around 1am and then you're back on the Today programme the following morning. Mm. How were you not... What, broken? Oh, going a bit crazy. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I have quite a lot of stamina. I think that's just a just a sort of physical thing that I'm quite lucky in that I can do okay for a fair number of days in a row without a huge amount of sleep. And, you know, we just did that last week, actually, going out to Ukraine, and we did this long journey to go in and interview the First Lady and then come back out, and that's a complicated journey, and we didn't have much sleep, and then we had the first show on Sunday, and... You know, in an ideal world, I probably wouldn't have been doing the first show having had, (laughs) you know, an average of four hours sleep or something the week before. People who have worked with Laura at the BBC over the years say she's great to work with. She cares about her team. She's never self-important. She says hello to everyone in the room. But with a tired smile, some people admit her pace of work can be 
a bit exhausting. And her stamina isn't, as you might have suspected, because she isn't prepared to go for a drink with her team. She does, and she stays late. But, bafflingly, she's always the perkiest person the following morning. The adrenaline, actually, of the story gets you through. And if you are, I don't want to sound pompous, but I think if you actually believe in what you're doing, then that drives you. And I think also my, my old job, you have to do so, you know, we can have a laugh and a giggle about being at conference, right? But if you think about party conferences in any political journalist job, they are the best possible way to make contacts, to find out what's really going on, to try and get under people's skin, to get into people's heads. And if it's the network, one of the nights I was, um, I mean, I maybe didn't used to do as many late nights as I did when I started covering party conferences, but, you know, they're always really valuable opportunities to meet people. Working hard is probably the most underrated thing, Laura told the Sunday Times earlier in the summer. And that's what so many of her colleagues admire her for. As one BBC colleague puts it, she still works and puts in calls like a 24-year-old producer. Some of my best contacts were people that I've got to know and I think understand as politicians are people that I met at party conferences, for example, you know, pretty much 20 years ago when maybe they were activists or junior party staffers or whatever. So you don't want to miss the opportunity, right, I suppose. Does she ever stop? I got better at learning to switch off over time. And I always tried to have quite a strong, I didn't always succeed in it, but I always had to have quite a strong kind of conviction that if I wasn't working, then I wouldn't sit and glue to my phone. And if you're listening to this, I'm doing a hilarious gesture of having my eyes on my screen. I mean, I think that I got I got better at that. And also I had like great colleagues, right? So if I wasn't in the newsroom, there's no point me sitting looking at Twitter. What a complete waste of time. That's just not, why would, why would you do that? And I, I think I always knew if something was really kicking off, then my phone would ring. And if my phone rang during that job, then I had to pick it up, right? That was the, that was the deal and that was fine. But I got better at, at switching off over the time of doing it. But also, I mean, also doing own journalism as well. It's a lot of fun. You know, we had a lot of fun. If you're travelling with the Prime Minister and you're in China and you're getting to go to these amazing places and, OK, you might, you know, actually the schedule has sort of two hours sleep for over three days. I mean, that's going to, you know, you're going to be pretty knackered at the end of it, but also what a privilege. Why wouldn't you stay awake? <laughs> Why wouldn't you stay awake, indeed? From outsider to the top Westminster insider, Laura Koonsberg has had the front row seat for some of the most turbulent and exciting times of recent political history. But she's also had her fair share of controversy. You know, you're not trying to make friends, but going to work shouldn't feel like a battlefield and it shouldn't feel like every time you get up, someone's trying to knock you down. Stay with us. 
and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. The Sunday Morning Politics Show on BBC One is a bit of an institution. I grew up watching Andrew Marr grill politicians at 9am every Sunday, and then I would discuss it with my gran when I visited her on Sunday afternoons. For millions of people who are interested in politics but don't have loads of time, this is one of the main times of the week when they engage with politics. So the changing of the guard from Marr to Laura Koonsberg is a huge moment for the BBC and for her. I was lucky enough to have a small glimpse of the anticipation and all the work going into it at 9am on the Sunday before it launched when I was one of the lucky guests on the secret rehearsal recorded with real politicians and public figures in a show that would never air. We will check out what is true and what is not. What a way to begin with both contenders for Prime Minister and also the interview with the First Lady of Ukraine. I got the impression watching it that that interview in Kiev was maybe the most meaningful one for you. That's interesting. That that's sort of, that's a new thing for you, interviewing new people um, in a different style. Mm -hmm. Did that feel quite special for you? Is that what you want to be doing more of? It felt, well, there's a couple of things in there. I mean, one, it did. It felt very special because going to Ukraine, I hadn't been to Ukraine before at all, um, let alone to do any of the coverage. And I mean, it's so surreal if you go to Kiev at the moment. When we arrived, actually, we were just going through the border town and we were you know, driving through the, what looked like, oh, this lovely little town. And it you know, could have been sort of Switzerland or something when you're on some you know, nice European holiday. And then suddenly there's an air raid siren, like just as you're driving past a playground. And there's just that constant sense of you're in this beautiful place that both feels very familiar, but then you have these reminders or this curfew. So, you know, at nine o'clock where everything shuts and it's suddenly darkness and we walked back from somewhere we'd been somewhere else through the darkness in the streets and then going to go and meet and interview her was such a genuinely unusual thing to do. And I just thought that she was also partly just extremely charming, but also amazingly composed. And she spoke so movingly about what was going on, but yet with a real sort of resolve, you know. So, yeah, that did really strike me. Whereas I suppose, although the show is new, you know, doing interviews with senior politicians is something I'm, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with that. It's different doing it always live. So having, you know, our show and trying to create an hour of TV is something that is wonderful to do, but it is different. But it's sort of my more familiar terrain is interviewing politicians, albeit this is in a different guise and in a different, on a different stage. 
but yes, yeah, interesting. It's interesting you say that because I was just I was really taken by that. The whole experience felt an amazingly privileged thing to do. Yeah, and I can't. I mean, I can't imagine. Obviously, um, you very kindly included me in the in the rehearsal for it, yeah. so I have a small sense of all the work that that went in. Yeah, were you happy with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, relieved. But yeah, yeah, I was I was very happy to be up and running. You know, as you say, it's been a lot of. We've spent a lot of time in the last few months kind of developing the show, thinking about how we want it to look, how we want it to feel. You know, you were good enough to come in and, and, and be one of the uh, willing bodies in one of the one of the rehearsals. And actually, from a technical point of view, you know, if you're if you're into these kinds of things, the studio that we're in has these like seven different robot cameras. Yeah, like Daleks hovering around the edge. <laughs> and like Daleks, yeah. Although I was thinking about putting little kind of face masks on mm. them, not not COVID face masks, but like, you know, mm. sort of character masks on them. So you can sort of interact, feel like you're interacting with a human being. But, you know, we've got new graphics. It's a new studio which was built for the 6 and 10 o'clock news, which is amazing in terms of the technical capability. But it's also very different to the old studio. And I used to present Newsnight in there about 100 years ago. But the sort of technology that's available to play with in that that studio, you know, takes quite a lot of getting used to. So apart from anything else, I was just relieved at the weekend that I didn't fall over, that none of the robots went AWOL and started, you know, filming things that they hadn't been instructed to. And yeah, just that the sort of thing worked. I was also very, very pleased that we had, you know, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak both came on. That was great. And we were, you know, that was something that we'd to interview the person who was going to be the prime minister the next day was something that we really wanted to do. And that, that came off. So that was great. So, so yeah, I was, I was, I was happy. And yeah, I mean, onwards and, you know, onwards. So now we've got the first one out of the way. It feels, it feels pretty good and pretty exciting, really. So there's a little bit of an elephant in the room at this point. The most important thing in that first show was, of course, Laura's rare sit-down interview with Liz Truss a day before she became Prime Minister. It produced some of the most instructive and revealing answers about the premiership we could expect from Liz Truss. But is it fair that on this decision, yes, it, is fair. it is fair yes, to give the wealthiest fair. people more money back. It is fair. But it was Joe Lysett who dominated opinion in the days that followed. He unleashed a dose of anarchy, sarcastically cheering at the end of Liz Truss's interview and then adopting a deeply sarcastic, incredibly right-wing persona to praise her for the rest of the show. I know exactly what she's up to. These moments trended on Twitter for days, with endless arguments about BBC impartiality. On the day Liz Truss was announced as the winner of the Tory leadership contest, the Daily Mail's front page fumed about anti-Tory bias, while other swathes of the internet praised the comedian for puncturing the inane charade of the political panels so often populated by journalists like myself. Sorry. Some people suspected that Laura didn't get the joke, or were angry that Liz Truss was mocked in that way. Others declared that the first show had been a flop. Laura Koonsberg's new show falls apart on the launch pad, read a headline in The Spectator, retweeted by ex-BBC colleague Andrew Neil. It all became part of a bigger conversation about Laura Koonsberg's suspected personal biases, about the BBC's impartiality in a polarised political climate 
and how it manages its relationship with the Tory government. In all of this, like so many similar Laura Koonsberg impartiality rows of recent years, the one person we don't hear from is Laura. Feels like everyone in the UK, Laura, has an opinion on Joe Lycett on your first show. Mm -hmm. So I would just love to ask, what did you make of him (laughs) on your show? Well, I think one of the things that we want to do with the programme, so when we sat down and thought, how are we going to take on this show? And the programme editor, Don Neal, who was the editor of, of of when it was Andrew Marr. And it's the classic thing where you think, well, you've got a really successful product. People loved it, watched really well. The ratings actually have been going up in recent years you know so you know don't believe everything you hear about terrestrial tv the figures on that slot are going up and that show has got this astonishing legacy and if you think of those you know iconic interviews that david frost did and some of the stuff that andrew did over the years you know he was the last western journalist to interview putin or i think the last british journalist to interview putin maybe i would double check that but at the same time, the format and the set and everything have been the same for a very long time, you know, and the world has changed. And I think that after a very sort of angry period in politics, one of the things that we really wanted to do was open things up a bit more, you know, have a wider range of people on the show, try to bring in some new people to the conversation. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, with, with trying to do that and bring people in. And that means, you know, sometimes they'll divide opinion. But I think that it's really important. And we'll have a really wide range of people on the programme and we'll have business people and sports people. We've got a couple of really interesting names coming up this weekend. So I think that you want to have a wide range in the conversation. And also the excitement of live TV is that you never quite know what's going to happen I think we certainly you know you never quite know if a guest is going to clap Liz Truss from the panel yeah I mean you don't know in live tv what is going to happen which is one of the reasons why live tv is different and 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 also very exciting and can also be very nerve-wracking so in the rehearsal I was actually the person in the chair that Joe Lycett would be sitting in I didn't applaud I didn't sing I didn't reveal that I was secretly incredibly right-wing I'm afraid I didn't give Laura very good practice for the anarchy that Joe would unleash. Particularly at the moment, it's not just because politics has been pretty shouty, but also people are having to deal with a very hard time. And definitely one of the things we want to do, and we've said it very clearly on air, but one of the things we want to do is try to also look for some light as well as shade. Yeah. You know, because there are good things in life and I think especially the experience of watching you know a sort of news current affairs discussion kind of thing not everything is awful politicians even sometimes agree on some things I mean I have quite an interesting conversation there's a senior politician who sort of keeps saying to me oh well you've got to have you must show where we agree and okay there's an awful lot of disagreement but there is also sometimes some agreement there is also there are things that are interesting and exciting and I think that you know, we know that especially on a Sunday morning or at some point on iPlayer through the week when people are, you know, sitting down with a cup of coffee or if they've got the TV sort of barbling on in the background where they're trying to have a nice Sunday morning with their with their family. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to have 
a bit of warmth and a bit of wit in that as well. You know, I used to work with Andrew Neil a lot, who's, you know, sort of the master in some ways. And I remember Andrew doing a conga around the newsroom with Diane Abbott and, and Michael Portillo years ago. You know, the idea that somehow that junction of sort of sometimes having satire or having a bit of fun when you're also discussing politics is new is not quite right so you know I think we'll have a wide range of people on and and that's a, and I think that's a good thing I stand by that so will Joe Lysett be invited back at some stage uh we'll continue to have all sorts of people on the program I don't know is the is the answer but I think we'll have loads of different people on and you know we'll see over the over the course of the the months and years how it all kind of evolves mm. but I think we definitely will you know I will continue to try to have a really wide range of people on the program because I think that's a good thing mm. and if we want people to get involved and enjoy what we're doing or interact and engage then that's a good thing. In her quiet way reminding us that new voices are good and satire in political debate isn't new. I think more than anything, Laura Koonsberg just wishes she could invite a comedian onto her show without people losing their minds. But she's no stranger to this kind of debate. It has defined her tenure as BBC political editor. Laura Koonsberg's experience was different to that of her predecessors. It involved covering political phenomena that the establishment hadn't seen coming, from Brexit to Jeremy Corbyn. And she did it as the first woman in the role and in the internet age. One of her reports on Corbyn was found to have breached the BBC's impartiality rules, although the broadcaster found there was no evidence of bias or intent in that mistake. And on that, most people you speak to in Westminster would agree. They don't think Laura Koonsberg has an agenda. In fact, people who've known her for decades still find her personal politics inscrutable. Her intentions might be doubted on social media, but they aren't so much in Westminster. Where opinion is more mixed, however, is whether she always achieved the balance she was striving for. In particular, on Twitter, a platform she was an early enthusiastic adopter of. Some people here in Westminster would privately say that she often got her use of Twitter wrong, that tweeting snippets of 280 characters, or 140 as it used to be, and often in a hurry, doesn't afford the necessary space for scrutiny and challenge. But even then, there are many politicians and journalists in Westminster who simply won't get into picking apart how Laura did her job. Her main problem, they would say, was simply being a woman and coming under more scrutiny and criticism for doing the same thing as all the men in similar jobs at an extraordinary time in politics. The strength of feeling about Laura on parts of the internet is like nothing you would see about her successor Chris Mason or her predecessor Nick Robinson or any other male political journalist. It is laced with misogyny. It's often abusive, and sometimes it threatens to spill into the real world. Laura Coonsberg from the BBC. Thank you very much. Um... <laughs> to the extent that she had to hire a bodyguard at Labour Party conference in 2017. The whole thing 
the big BBC impartiality row, the many opinions on Laura's own reporting, the abuse she receives has been the subplot to the career of someone who just wants to get on and report the story. It's amazing that she withstood it for so long and without ever saying much about the storm around her. You're no stranger to controversy or being at the centre of political arguments. And I get the impression that you're kind of used to it, that you, that it maybe doesn't bother you anymore, does it? Well, you don't become... I mean, you know, you don't become... And I said this before, and it sounds, it sounds really harsh, and I don't mean it like this, but, you know, you don't become a journalist to become people's friend, right? You know, you become a journalist because you're trying to find the truth and to try to find things out and then communicate them to the public and work out what it means. And I believe in that very deeply. And I believe very deeply in the right of the public to have good information so they can make good decisions. And that's like absolutely what the BBC is all about. But you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be po-faced while you do that. And in a controversial time, of course, that means that sometimes people on any which way, any sides, uh, whatever, are going to try and have an issue with what you what you do and you know that's 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 fine that's all in the matter of kind of free debate and that's you know that's okay but I do think you know it's not okay when it tends to people just being straightforwardly abusive and unpleasant I don't get preoccupied with that but I care about that a lot when it's targeted particularly at younger colleagues and particularly younger women coming into the industry and that's, you know, one of the reasons why, as you, as you know, that, you know, we've done a lot in Westminster, this sort of, I was going to say the word sisterhood, that's terribly trite, isn't it? But this sort of, you know, the gang, the gang of seven or whatever we were, you know, me and some of the other um, female political editors, you know, we put, had a lot of fun and put a lot of effort into trying to make a better place to work for younger women coming into the industry because it shouldn't be a battlefield. You know, you're not trying to make friends, but it shouldn't, going to work shouldn't feel like a battlefield and it shouldn't feel like every time you get up, someone's trying to knock you down. Um, and I don't think it is like that. Um, and I think it is easier than it was when I started, but I want it to be, you know, easier still and more welcoming still. Um, and of course, social media has changed a lot. You know, when I started, there were lots of barriers and it wasn't particularly welcoming but there wasn't such a proliferation of social media which has made things... And I mean, I think the word sisterhood is the word. A senior female journalist described you to me as sisterly oh, yesterday. Oh, that's nice. And, and I think, you know, the younger women in Westminster, like, we appreciate how supportive you are behind the scenes, as exemplified by the fact that you've taken time out to do this podcast when you're incredibly busy building this primetime show on BBC. So it's re- greatly appreciated. Well, that's very kind. And that, but, well, that matters, you know, it matters to me, right? It matters to me a lot. There are always more people around to help than you might think, you know? And it always, it always makes me laugh, and then I must go, but it always makes me laugh that the, there was a joke. Do you remember we had the, my, the final women's lobby when I was there? This is Ultimate Westminster Insider. But everybody was really nice. And then the other female political editors gave me a big bunch of flowers and took me out for dinner. And there were more than a couple of them <laughs> just sick. Can you imagine if one of the blokes had been leaving? I don't quite think that's what would have happened. <laughs> yeah, the sisterhood is strong. Maybe that's a terrible, terrible, terrible slur. Maybe they do buy each other flowers, Laura. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, um, I must go. Laura Koonsberg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure and good luck. Laura Koonsberg, 
The woman who came into Westminster feeling like an outsider, who rose and conquered it. The journalist utterly without ego, who hates becoming the story, but time and again finds herself at the centre of the debates that have defined recent times. The journalist who has come, more than any other person, to represent the divisions the BBC must navigate as it tries to be a broadcaster for everyone. The journalist who can't invite a comedian onto her new show without it making the front page of the Daily Mail. But she takes it in her stride. And behind the scenes, she is a sisterly figure who quietly makes sure that she makes this environment more welcoming for those of us coming up the ranks behind her. This is just the start of a new chapter for someone who has shaped British public life for the past seven years and will be doing so on Sunday mornings for many more. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Alva Ray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow and maybe leave us a nice review. And don't forget, you can go back and listen to past episodes, including Inside the Lobby, where we go inside the world of Westminster's political journalists and explain what we really get up to all day inside the corridors of power. Thank you to my guest this week, Laura Koonsberg. My producer is Eve Streeter of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.